Welcome to the Think Differently and Deeply podcast series. My name is Glenn Whitman, and I direct the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School. This series features authors from the recently published volume of the CTTL's internationally recognized publication, Think Differently and Deeply, which has been distributed to over 10,000 teachers, school leaders, and policymakers worldwide. Today, I'm joined by the incomparable Rodney Glasgow, a nationally recognized leader in diversity, equity, and social justice work in independent schools who just so happens to moonlight as St. Andrew's Director of Diversity and Head of the Middle School. This episode will focus on Rodney's work establishing a social environment in the middle school that is responsive to the rapidly developing adolescent brain that he shared in his article, The Social Mindset, which will appear in Volume 3 of Think Differently and Deeply. Welcome, Rodney. Thank you. Great to be here. It is great, Rodney. I know we've known each other a long time. We've thought about students a long time. Yes. uh, uh, it is a privilege to sit down with you and uh, talk about research, uh, students, and laugh, I'm sure, a little. <laughs> of course. Uh, so uh, my first question actually dates back to what I was thinking when you first submitted the, the draft of this mm. article. And I was struck by the title, Social Mindset. Right. Um, we're all very familiar with growth mindset. Yep. And mindsets such as belonging and purpose and relevance. But can you tell me a little bit about your thinking about creating a social mindset, especially amongst middle school students? Mm-hmm. I love that question. And it, it may be almost a misnomer, right? Because if you read Matt Lieberman's work, which I know you've dabbled in, I've dabbled in. Mostly because you made me dabble. It is what? <laughs> I just want to go on <laughs> um, Is that the brain, when it is in its resting state, Um, which the brain, of course, never rests. But if we take it as a resting statement, we're not guiding the brain. It is actually a mirror of when our brain is in social situations. And so what it means is our brain is actually already predisposed to a social mindset. We socially encode information, we socially decode information, and our brain is a social brain. To watch middle schoolers, you might not think that. (laughs) But it is, is, I find that this fascinating, um, is that we often separate, and you know there was that whole movement in research, right, where there was emotional and social intelligence, and then there was IQ. And it's interesting to think about our brains being married between IQ and EQ. Great setup for my next question. I, you know, I you know I've watched firsthand in two ways. One is I've just a, a recent graduate. Uh, my son just recently graduated. That's right. Uh, or moved up from the, <laughs> from our middle school. So I've I've looked at it as a parent, but also as part of the the faculty at St. Andrews. Uh, there's no question you do academic challenge rigor right. um, really well in the middle school. But how do you then intentionally, whether it's through defined programming, mm-hmm. through curriculum? or uh, other elements of the middle school experience start developing a social mindset in your students? Mm -hmm. It really is. And I was talking with one of our new teachers who came to visit today about this approach that we take with our students, which really is to be able to help them to walk through and process the things that are happening around them. So middle schoolers will give you any opportunity to redirect or to help them think more deeply about, so what's actually happening in this situation? A a classic example that happens a million times a day is a teacher kicks a student out of the class, they get sent to the principal's office, and I say, well, what happened? Why are you here? I don't know. And I say, well, well, what did she say? She said to get out of the class. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, well, what was happening right before that? Well, right before that, I was laughing with the person sitting next to me. Okay, and so 
than what was happening right before that. But right before that, she had said, you know, the class is getting a little too rowdy and she needed everybody to be quiet. So then she said, everybody be quiet. And then you laughed right after that. And then she said, and then you watched the, oh, that's what happened. Right. <laughs> but I didn't mean to. And no, we know you didn't mean to. But let's now, and this is the next piece of the social mindset. Now let's take the perspective of the teacher. What do you think was happening for the teacher right in that moment while she was trying to go over this very intricate math problem and we weren't listening and she was getting frustrated, right? Because her goal is to try to teach in the front of the room. Sure. And so she's talking and y'all are not listening and she's trying to get the control back and just as she had it, what happened? Oh, I messed it up. And that's why you got kicked out of the class. So how are you going to go back now and fix it? Oh, I need to go back and, and apologize. So right. And you might want to have the class think about settling down so that the teacher can do what they need to do. And I send the student back. I don't go back to check. But nine times out of ten, they go back and they apologize. And they do a really good job of redirecting their peers. But how you get them, and, and that could be, Glenn, a seven to ten minute conversation. Sure. But how do you get them to go from, I have no reason <laughs> why I'm here. And I've done nothing wrong, right, to... I see what my part was in this matrix of other things going on, right? And we do that constantly for kids. Fantastic. What about, so So obviously that's a um, somewhat of a discipline moment. Right. Uh, you know, I think th our listeners out there, um, whether they're in private schools, public schools, charter schools, international schools, would probably want to know from your experience as a middle school head, uh, is there particular programming um, or ways you convey even before the problem happens to kids, mm -hmm. that, that our middle school will collectively have a social mindset. Right. I think it starts in the creation of norms, which we do yep. as, a, as a grade, as advisories, and as a whole school at the beginning of the year. And even this year, I started with something different where we have our rules, and I explained the rules to the students. And then I said, I want you to take those rules and turn them into norms. But first, tell me what you think the difference between a rule and a norm uh, is. That was going to be my follow-up right. <laughs> You're good at this. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and who knows? You, you throw it open, who knows what they're going to say. Um, but they nailed it. They were like, well, the rule is something that you're not supposed to do, and a norm is something that you are supposed to do. I said, right, and every rule is based in some norm. We don't want you to do certain things so that you will do other things. So they took every rule that we had, which are, and rules are always framed in the negative, and they put it into the positive as to why it had to be that way. And I saw that helped them to more deeply understand it's not about control or about I want to tell you what to do. It's about we're trying to create an environment. So people do that in their classrooms. People do that in their advisories. And we go back to those norms whenever we get into any sort of a sticky situation. So I think number one programmatically is you want to be clear with students about what kind of environment are you trying to create. And what I love about our middle school is they're like little messengers because they could tell you this is what the middle school is about. Sure. Yep. This is the environment we want to have. And no doubt they, they, they all the time name them all. This is an inclusive, welcoming, diverse environment that's about learning from and with each other. They will tell, everyone will tell you that. So I think that's the first part. And then the second part is where do you give them opportunities to show and express that? And we are lucky to have a lot of opportunities. They can speak in chapel. Um, they can create a club. 
right? They're always doing projects. Even the final exams this year were so much more project and presentation-based sure, yeah. than they were sit down and data dump to me, right? And so, and students were problem solving. All of that is their opportunity to think about how do I put into action in a culture where I feel safe and supported and where I know I'm up there and I'm going to be asked questions, but the questions are being asked to make me better versus to catch me on what I didn't understand. But it starts, to me, the foundation starts with languaging the kids. This is the environment we're trying to create. And if ever I'm correcting you, it's because I want to get us back to this. Fantastic. You know, the uh, your article, which I hope everybody reads uh, once we get it into print, which will be any week, any day now, uh, starts with a really great story. I don't, I don't even know if you remember the story, so I'm going to remind you of the story. <laughs> um, it was a student who you said hello to and shook his mm. hand and how startled the mother was right. that he acknowledged your adult <laughs> presence. Uh, why do you think that moment, that norm that mm -hmm. we will say hello to each other, mm. hopefully by name, is really critical for the middle school brain or the adolescent brain. Right. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that can go so deep. Yeah, right? so, yeah, so, we'll just let you run for a while. <laughs> and, yeah, we'll so first, shout out to Responsive Classroom. Sure. Because Responsive Classroom kind of holds up that ideal, and we don't, and they have a middle school version of it. We don't necessarily use Responsive Classroom as deeply as our intermediate school does. And our lower school. And our yeah. lower school, yeah. but we borrow some pieces, especially the philosophy from them, that there is something about calling students, people, into the space. And so we start with morning meeting with having that moment where someone has welcomed you. And I even do it with adults, and it's very important. And that it somehow makes you more present. Even the act, and there's probably a neurological function to this, right? It has to be because we respond so much to our names. So the act of someone saying your name calls your brain into yep. right, cognition and presence. And we probably don't increase a heightened sense of belonging, too, right? That's right. That's right. And so already, just by saying, good morning, Glenn, I've called you into a space with me. It's the afternoon, just here. Yes. But, <laughs> well, they don't know that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but that moment of we're going to stop and acknowledge each other is even deeper than that because it's not only am I calling you in the space, but I'm letting you know I see you there. And the other thing that I try to train kids to do is to not do it on the fly. We're all busy. We've all got places to be. But I try to model for them. When I stop and say good morning, you stop and say good morning. If I ask you how you are, you tell me how you are, and I will pause and actually listen. So much with, like, how you doing? Fine, right? And we keep moving. And, and even just something like, mm, you know, I got a test. Right? That's enough. And I, and I can give you a, you know what, it'll be fine. And if it's not fine, we can correct it. Just that little bit means you are called into the space and I see you. If we take this even deeper, right, with all of the things going on in schools right now sure. around what happens to kids who are not seen, heard, appreciated in their environment, we know some of the things that they do in order to be seen and heard and appreciated in the environment. So just the fact that you know we're not going to walk by each other and not acknowledge each other means if you really have something to say, you're more likely to come back to say it to me. It's a facilitator trick too, right? Studies have shown that in a, in a workshop setting, you know this better than I, that if you get someone to speak the first time, they're more likely to speak again. You just got to find some way to trick them into speaking first, right. and, and then all of a sudden they're a full participant. But if you let them check out, then they'll continue to check all the way out. Right. So just that notion of speaking to me in the morning means if something happens during the day, we've already broken the seal, you've already spoken to me. Right. right? So it's deeply 
important. That parent was surprised because <laughs> apparently he doesn't speak to many people. But I actually understood that because I have noticed that there are kids whom I would, in my own business, just as soon to walk by and they will stop and say, Mr. Glasgow, how are you doing? Like it means something to them if I was to walk by them. And one student actually in the last week of school, I was so, you know how busy it is. And I walked by a student and didn't speak. And he came back to my office and said, I don't know if you heard me, but I said something to you and you didn't say anything. I said, oh my God, I really did. <laughs> I really didn't see you. I am so sorry. But it meant he came back to right. say, you know, you walked by me without speaking. And, and it's, it's important to us. So I, I imagine at the beginning of a school year, that student who chased you down. Right. Bravo for I don't know, him, her, that. Him, yeah. Okay. Um, but I imagine at the beginning of the year, it might look a little different where the, the, the teacher or the adult has to be the initiator. Yes. So, yes. and it's great that you, you, we probably all want the end of the year where they're chasing right. you down. Right. Um, so, so talk to me about how critically important you have an, an, an incredibly dedicated middle school faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, how critically important is the role of the adult? and the faculty mm-hmm. and your own leadership team right. to s- establish that social mindset and model that social mindset. Mm-hmm. It's important, the modeling, and we need to first model it adults to adults, right? Because students will see, if I walk by Miss Williamson and don't speak, sure. then they're going to think it's okay to walk by Miss Williamson and not speak, right? So we need to model with adults what we want to see from students. And I think that's important. The other piece is giving adults outside of and within the classroom an opportunity to be human beings to the students in a healthy way um, so that they don't forget like those moments where kids come in and they don't know why they've been kicked out of the class my conversations are essentially to remind them that there's a human being in the classroom right that's trying to do a job that's helping you and you're not making it easy and so they needed you to take a break and remember that there's other people around and the teacher is a person so I think that's important I always tell teachers don't make your first encounter with the student the negative one. We have to redirect kids all sure. the time. That's part of our job. But, but make sure you've had, even if it's just a hello, a moment that day to say something positive to a kid before you have to tell them, stop talking, move your seat. Because if that's all the interaction they have with you, then that net negative relationship gets in the way of their being able to learn from you. Because we are socially minded because our brains process all that information socially. So when they are in their resting state and their brain is processing the day, part of what their brain is processing is how did it feel to be in that class with that person? Sure. And what do I need to have going into that class tomorrow? And if part of what I need to have is my wall up because this teacher is going to have something negative to say because I just know that from my experience today, then that takes a chunk of the brain away from being able to focus on the task at hand. It, right? It's like your, your amygdala gets hijacked. Yeah, yep. Before you even get into the room, the next time, the first time it caught you off guard. <laughs> but the way blind spots work is that our brains fill in the information based on our world's perception. So if I perceive that math class to be a place where I'm more likely to get in trouble before I am to get praised, then I go into that math class ready for trouble. So, you know, I, that's, a, that's really great perspective. Um, I'm really fascinated by this idea and this feedback. I, I know you've gotten it and I've gotten it as directing the centers. It's when parents say, you know, Rodney, Glenn, whomever, Stop wasting your time on social and emotional learning. Mm. You know, you know, you know, 
the academics rigor, the academic challenge, the content mm-hmm. drive is really critical because my middle school student is thinking about, you know, he wants to go to the Ivy League. So right, right, why, right, right. you know, you certainly in your time here at St. Andrews, which is, what, what year are we at now? I'm, I'm, the end of year six. Okay, and, and you look great. <laughs> Thank you, right I know. I need... You know, why, you have certainly elevated the social and emotional mm. ele- to, to be better balanced with our academic uh, rigor and challenge here. Right. Why give it so much time mm. um, from bo- uh, and such an intentional time? Right. It's a great question because, and you've languaged it just how people would language it. Sure, yeah. And what I say to those folks is learning is a social and emotional process. There is no learning without emotion attached Could to it. Could not agree with you anymore. And, and without a social nature attached to yep. it. Learning is a social process. Evolutionarily, learning is a social process. Learning is actually a social invention right? That I can teach you what I know and you teach me what you know. So I I understand because of how the nation has discussed education that we think there's this thing called social intelligence and there's this thing called intelligence and they are different kinds of intelligences. They actually are not. They're deeply married and they're one and the same. And I am not going to be able to learn in a place where I am emotionally hijacked or socially disconnected. So you could try to teach me as much as you would want, but if I'm not safe with you, I'm not learning from you, right? If I am endeared to you, I'm learning more from you. And there are studies that show this. It's interesting. Um, in Lieberman's book, Social, he, he had two, he talked about a study that he had two groups, and they both were watching a news program. And one group was told, I want you to pay attention to this information because all this information, I'm going to ask you questions about what happened in this news story, which is more like classic learning, right? right? The other group was told, you're not really watching this for the news story. I need to know everything you can figure out about these newscasters based on what you're seeing of them on the screen. I need you to really pay attention to them because I want to know your impressions of them. The folks who learned more about the news story were the people who were paying attention to the newscasters. The people paying attention to the information missed key things, but the people paying attention to the people got it all because they were encoding socially the information. And so I I appreciate where they're coming from and, and there are these hard skills, but there is no skill that isn't related to a social function. Excellent, you said it well. I couldn't agree with you more as I said earlier. My thinking, though, as you just were speaking, is, you know, I've been at St. Andrews 20 years, and one of the things I'm most proud of, at least uh, observing and being part of, is the breadth of diversity that Mm. the school can, you you see now when we walk our halls. And 20 years ago, we were lily white, right? right? And you can look at graduation pictures. That's right. Does that, though, create a greater challenge when you're thinking about a social mindset of, being culturally aware of different student populations mm-hmm. and where they are coming from. And it's even more than that. It's, it's, it's gender, class. But I think the greater diversity is awesome. Social right. mindset has to be thought of differently, potentially with different races, classes, genders, you right. name it. Right. Uh, so if you could speak to that a little. I don't know if there was a good question in there. It's a great but, question. But it just got me thinking, like, we talk a lot about differentiation and personalization. I got to believe that fits the social mindset um, as well. Absolutely. So one of the things I was thinking about as you was talking was 
It creates a great challenge, but as you know, our brains learn under challenge. Sure. So as, as there is no learning without a social connection, there is no learning without a challenge, which is why schools are set up the way that they are, is to present you with developmentally appropriate challenge. And so I think the diversity brings us a great opportunity to learn even more deeply from each other, because at some point, all of those different folks and perspectives coming together will put our brains in cognitive dissonance, sure. which is the difference between how I saw the world and now how the world is really being revealed to me. Right, What I thought was true is all of a sudden now not true about myself, about the world, about the person sitting next to me. And my brain is like, does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. How am I figuring this out? That's where the learning is. That's right. where the brain is firing. That does not tend to happen in homogenous groups. Right, because your brain is actually functioning under cognitive reward. Sure. It's being reinforced in what it already knows and affirmed in what it already knows, and that is being even more deeply encoded, and there is value in that process. But that is just strengthening the existing pathways. There is no learning, and the brain is so plastic and wants so much to use right. its plasticity. Right, especially at the middle school years. Right? Oh, of yeah. course. I mean, that's the, you know, there is no time except between when you're zero to two yep. where you're growing more than between sixth grade and eighth grade, yep. right? But physically, perhaps, but also your brain itself is doing a lot of work. And your brain is actually doing dual work of learning and growing a lot and also the synaptic pruning of what do I need to know and strengthen to function even more as an adult in this world. So it's, it's dual functioning as an adolescent, which is why sometimes they can appear to be so deep and yet so shallow at the same time. <laughs> so, right? They've, they've got hyper-focus and broad, right, broad responsibility. I think the diversity piece gets tricky because it also can work against schools in that there is more potential in a diverse environment for someone to hijack my amygdala sure. without meaning to, without knowing that they have. And therefore, it's so important that as we increase diversity, as St. Andrews has done, we also look at the learning and the social environment of the school. Right. Because if I am in a place where I go to school here, but I don't feel I belong here, right. then my learning is hindered Absolutely. by that. Absolutely. And, and vice versa, if someone all of a sudden feels like, I thought I was coming to one place, and now I'm in another place, right? And what we don't always attend to is as you diversify these environments, you are changing a norm. And that means you are putting people's brains under cognitive dissonance where they thought they were coming to a place where they were the norm and the norm is shifting. And we have to attend to how are they processing that and how are they internalizing this change for themselves in terms of how they operate. And we think a lot about how do we help students of color, LGBT students, students on financial aid who are coming into these white wealthy environments, sure. and we know they're not the norm. Right. But their presence is also changing the norm of the school. And so now the students who were the norm all of a sudden are having this experience of, I'm not sure how to behave in this environment. Right, right. No, fair enough. And if you don't attend to stuff like that, you know, and I like to escalate things, if you don't attend to stuff like that, you end up in Charlottesville, right? People watching that say we will not be replaced. Right. And that is such a deep thing to think about because what I could sympathize with those folks on a level of was all of a sudden I was a norm and I was comfortable and you've shifted me into a discomfort but not heard my need around how do I process it. Right. I know you see this as a privilege where, you know, there are various points in the year when you get to present to teachers at mm. other schools or travel. And, and as well as you actually have come through the independent school world as a student. What makes you hopeful that other schools and other teachers and even school leaders 
are embracing this idea that the social mindset must sit side by side the the academic challenge and rigor mindset that all our schools always will prioritize. Right. I mean, I do see a shift towards character education as one of the key things that schools are taking up. I think if we look at the history of education in this country, there was a time where we were hyper-focused on curriculum. Sure. Um, and curriculum being reading, writing, arithmetic. Yep. And there was a point at which we realized perhaps we should be talking about character development. Perhaps we should be attending to the social mindset. And that has only deepened. What is interesting about education is we think it's a new thing. It actually was the reason education was invented, which is why I say education is social. Because if you look at Horace Mann, and now we're talking about private schools, right. but Horace Mann was the founder of the public school movement. Yeah, sure, yeah. And, and his reason for why everybody should have public education was because it would teach kids to be good citizens and it would level the playing field that would create a society where you had a means and a common means to rise above class divides. And, and that was what he was talking about in the 1800s when he invented that thing, right? Dewey came along in the early 1900s and talked about we should be doing experiential education that is relevant to the learner, and the learner should be learning from someone who can make it relevant to them, and they should be able to apply that in a context with other people. Dewey was about social, emotional intelligence yep. and how that relates to academic intelligence. And so if we just keep going through, right, um, we talk about the most knowledgeable other, right, and this idea of Vygotsky and, and that somebody next to you who knows a little more will help you to raise your level of what you could know. So learning has always had this social context. And I think in our efficiency in the public school system, we got away from it. What I love about the independent school system is that we always had a piece of we're attending to the social. Right. Now what I can appreciate is that who we were attending to and what that social meant has changed greatly over time. We're talking about schools who by and large were built for the right wealthy elite to come and be socialized and yep. how to be the right wealthy elite. Yes. We are doing a different socialization <laughs> right. now, um, still based in the foundations of right wealthy elitism, but at least open to the diversity of the world. Right. You know, you, you get students as sixth graders. They they leave you as eighth graders. But the great thing about our school is we're a full community of preschool through 12. So right. you see kids as, as they get older. But how, as a researcher, do you measure success uh, around your, your division's work uh, in mm. the social mindset? Right. I think some people take measures of success. It's not a wrong measure, but you look at things like the honor roll. You look sure. at the grade point averages yeah. and those things. And that, that will tell part of the story. I think we've got to get comfortable with benchmarking really on an individual level. So I take my success at knowing my students well and knowing where they started sixth grade in versus where they ended it and where that student started seventh grade and where he ended it and where he started middle school versus where he ended it. We were just talking with a parent this morning who came in about, and her student is now probably 10th or 11th grade. And she talked about how middle school was pivotal Right. I mean, it's so relevant to this conversation. Here's what she says to me. Middle school was pivotal for my child because it was something about what you were doing gave my child, and she literally said this, a safe space where he didn't have one before. And because of that, he became a student in a way he was not a student before. And this is now a high-achieving, high-impact student. Right. Right, who came in resentful of school, 
because he didn't have the opportunity to emotionally connect with school leadership before. That benchmark, and you could see it. This was a student who, you know, I got the warning signal when they were coming in in, in sixth grade of this is a student you need to watch. I love when people say that because I'm like, great, this is one I'm going to really be. Okay. Right? This you're is not going to watch any of the others. No, no, no. no. Oh, no. Okay. Right? But I'm like, this is the one that's going to be the test case. Where is this student going to end up? And to go from this is one you need to watch in a negative way to that student giving the graduation speech at eighth grade, that's when you know you've done your work. Great. Right? No. First of all, I want to say thank you. It's been a, I love our friendship, uh, but I also love of, of what you, you've made me, you've made me work hard. And I know a lot of our teachers work hard on thinking about the social mindset mm. and diversity and inclusion. And more importantly, um, I love that I can rely on you to contribute a great piece uh, to each <laughs> issue of Think Differently and Deeply. So uh, look, look, look for an email in, in next year for, for volume four. Happy to do anything uh, you ask me to do. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> I got that on recording. Uh, Rodney, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. At St. Andrews, we often end our classes with some form of exit ticket or active retrieval of information that was a focal point of the day's class. We know from mind, brain, and education research that if students don't start recalling or using their learning, they are bound to forget it. So in that research-informed spirit, here is your exit ticket. If you're a teacher, what strategies could you introduce at your school to shape a research-informed social mindset? And for parents, what strategies have you seen in action at your child's school that made a difference for your preteen? Tweet your response to at the CTTL. We look forward to seeing what you come up with. The Think Differently and Deeply podcast is a production of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Potomac, Maryland, where the mission is to know and inspire each child in an inclusive community dedicated to exceptional teaching, learning, and service. Each podcast is produced by Kirsten Peterson and mixed by Jordan Yance. Jordan also composed our theme music, which we lovingly call The Growth Mindset. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and more. And while you're there, leave us a review. This active reflection will embed what you've learned from this podcast into your long-term memory.